Hey, Rob Roy here. Today, uh, just getting back into listening to your podcast. I had a bit of a hiatus there uh, with, well, just busy with COVID stuff and uh, producing my season two, but enjoyed your episode on our humans and endangered species. As you probably know by now, my way of dealing with that is making all demi-humans multi-class so that they advance at a much slower level. I don't know if that's sufficient to discourage min-maxers. I've been pretty lucky in my group of players that they pretty much play what they like rather than what's going to give them the best mechanical advantage. Part 2. As you probably also know, I have tried to add some disadvantages to demi-humans. So, for instance, in terms of the elf, their allergy to iron, and in terms of halflings, they have some disadvantages in terms of both uh, combat as well as some of the thieving skills that may rely on height. Uh, For the dwarf, I haven't really come up with a good one yet. I have to think about that. In old school games, life is cheap. Don't be a dope. Bring your pole, oil, and rope. And try not to go down in a heap. Hey everyone, welcome back to the Down in a Heap podcast. I'm your host, Rob podcasting to you from beautiful northeast minneapolis top of the show there we heard from roy Lorenko from the chaos's limb podcast and he's kind of talking about his own game chaos's limb which is a take on the holmes basic D set and in his game as he kind of outlines there or alludes to for the non-human uh, class options he kind of combines characteristics of the human classes to make kind of a multi-class feel. So, like in, in Moldvade, uh, Cook Marsh BX, the elf is combining the, the fighter and magic user aspects. In Chaos's Limb, the halfling is combining the fighter and thief. And the dwarf is combining the fighter and cleric. And thereby... You know, the like the Elf and BX, the, all the demi-human classes advance more slowly than human, and that's kind of uh, one of the, I guess, the drawback to choosing one of those classes. You get a lot of added benefits, but uh, you also go up a lot slower. And as far as hmm, ideas for giving dwarves disadvantages, I wonder if... Because they're resistant to poison, maybe you could make the case that their their digestive system is somehow different, and maybe potions don't work on dwarves or have a chance of failing or having minimal effects or something like that. Or, I don't know, maybe they may <coughs> need to make a saving throw, and if they, ah, that's dumb. Mm, other things, I suppose you could play up there their uh the the trope that they're really greedy and they have to always try and hoard wealth and stuff or hmm, i don't know just spitballing but as the uh, the calls imply this is another call in bonanza so let's move on okay rob roy here from chaos's limb i'm getting up to September of 2019. Hope you don't mind me commenting on these old posts. If you do, just uh, send me a message, because if you just reply to it in your podcast, I won't hear it until it's too late. Anyway, heard you were uh, diving into Talislanta. I'm meaning to do that for some time myself. It seems like such a rich background that I always felt like I would want to do it one kingdom at a time have the PCs come from that kingdom, and when you move to the next kingdom, well, you could replace any of the ones you lost with someone from the new kingdom, but just give you an opportunity to really dive in deep and explore each of the 
weird cultures they had in there. Anyway, love to hear how it's going. Well, I'm going to have to apologize because I've got all these messages in the back queue that uh, some of them go back to April. So it's, yeah, I've really gone down in a heap yet again. And uh, I've not replied to these quickly enough. But I don't mind at all when people call in regarding the back catalog. The foray into Talislanta in our group was just kind of a one-session thing. It was a little bit of a stopgap when there were a few people on vacation and stuff, and I just wanted to give it a whirl. And I, I never really specified that this is going to be a, um, a one-session or two-session kind of thing. If it would have, you know, if everyone really would have gotten into it, I would have been fine uh, playing it once in a while or something just to keep it uh, keep it going. And it's something that we still might play, but I do re- think it requires a, a lot of buy-in on the player's part. The It is a game, I think, that would work best as an exploration game where you, as you outline, move from region to region exploring and discovering these new things. But on the same hand, I think the players would at least need to know some of the cursory points and maybe details on at least the neighboring cultures and, of course, their culture. And, yeah, we all, I mean, myself included, I think just uh, were in way over our heads to begin with. There's just so much there um, that it requires a lot of commitment. Maybe it would be best if you just did something like said, hey, in six months we're going to do a Talislanta game, and here's the PDF of the Chronicles of Talislanta. Read these parts at at least to, to ground yourself in the game um but yeah maybe eventually but right now i'm just sticking with uh, my bx noodlings thanks for the call okay next question sometime last year you told us that we could ask you anything and that your specialties are rpgs cheese and baseball not that interested in baseball but I do like cheese. So, what's the best cheese to have with an RPG? Do you have different types of cheeses depending on the game you're playing? So, would uh, Call of Cthulhu call for some sort of blue cheese and maybe um, D&D a sharp-aged cheddar? Anyway, I'm a big fan of Gouda as well as Havarti. So, you got anything you want to recommend for me? Oh, Roy, you've opened up a can of worms. I could talk about cheese all day. In fact, I've thought about doing, like, cheesy interludes on my podcast here, Talking Cheese. But I like your, your idea here for having different themes or different cheeses for different games and stuff. For D&D... I gotta go with Red Dragon. Yeah, there's a cheese called Red Dragon. It's a UK cheddar spiked with mustard seeds and ale, and it's delicious. Well, if you like mustard, which I do. For something like Call of Cthulhu, I think a blue cheese is a great call because you've got that kind of creepy mold uh, worming its way through the fissures of the cheese, like some kind of cancerous growth or something and of course for blue i love the original roquefort sheep's milk raw milk blue from france um hard to go wrong there although i do love stilton too Hmm. for an espionage game you got to go with les secrets de lee which is based on the famous saint marcelin uh, it comes in a little ceramic crock. It's a soft, ripened cheese like a brie. It's almost spoonable when it's uh, really ripe. It's got a kind of a yogurty, creme fraiche tang to it. Really tasty. And for a post-apocalyptic game, I'd go with Deer Creek, the Moon Rabbit. It's wrapped in a bright <laughs> green foil. Uh, the the picture is really funny. It's a rabbit on the moon. And it's uh, 
an aged cheddar that's been soaked in chartreuse. As far as your likes of Gouda and Havarti, hmm, I'm not sure what part of the country you're in, but if you can find Marika Penterman's cheeses, Marika Gouda, any of her offerings are great there. She's from Holland, so it's a she's meticulous about following uh, the real Gouda standards. It's raw milk. It's delicious. There's a bunch of different flavors you can get: truffle, fenugreek, mustard seed, smoked. Any of them are good, and also any kind of aged Gouda that brings out kind of a caramely butterscotch kind of quality and it you get the little crystallization in there so you get a little crunch and stuff uh the beamster xo is really good domestically jeff select is really good havarti yeah i love that too um if you haven't tried it try an aged havarti the costello aged havarti is pretty dang tasty all right enough cheese talk Next topic. You asked for comic book movies for people who don't like comic books. Uh, I think Spencer from Keep Off the Borderlands pretty much nailed it. At least two of his three picks were ones I that came to mind immediately to me when I was trying to think of a list. And I can't say that his third pick is any worse than anything I could come up with. I am curious, though, if uh, Spencer would change his selection now that the Joker has come out, something I haven't watched yet, but heard a lot of great things about. Rob, Roy here from Chaos Islam. I just reached your discussion on variable weapon damage, abstraction, and hand-waving. Ah, great, great stuff. I, uh, you probably know by now that I'm a D6er when it comes to this. I feel like I'm admitting to be an anti-vaxxer or something. Uh, but, uh, at one point you ask, well, if you're going to abstract that, why not just, you know, eliminate all the different kinds of armor and abstract the magic user spells? And you know what? I did just that. And now you're forcing me to add a new addendum to my season two, where I discuss my... Chaos's Limb Regression Edition. There you go. Go listen to the Chaos's Limb episode on that. The Regression. The Anti-Vaxxer. <laughs> uh, that's hilarious. Thanks, Roy. Hey, Rob Roy here. Just getting through your back catalog. I'm in November, December 2019. Uh, and in November, you did state that having call-ins for any of your back catalog was fair game, so uh, be warned. <laughs> I am taking advantage of that. Uh, what else? BX Deep Dive. Really enjoying that a lot. I'm not very familiar with the BX version. Uh, I'm a homes man myself from way back. I liked in your Whispered Tales of Gore how you modified the elves to allow them illusionist and druid spells. I don't know if you've listened yet to my review of uh, Chaos's Limb, my Holmes retro clone. Uh, if you have, you know that I did add some druid spells to the elf's repertoire, but I hadn't thought about I hadn't thought about using illusionist spells for elves, but that makes a lot of sense given kind of the legendary background of elves. So now I'm uh, you're tempting me to take another look at my elf list of spells, see if there's anything else I want to throw in there. Thanks. Keep it up. Hey, thanks. Glad I gave you some food for thought there. And I'd really like to get the, uh, from Old School Essentials by Gavin Norman, I'd really like to get that uh, Advanced Edition Companion. And then there's a, a book that he has... Uh, another companion piece that has the druid and illusionist spells kind of rejiggered for the BX framework. So, yeah, I'd like to get those too. They've been out of stock at uh, um, Exalted Funeral, but uh, 
I'm hoping that boat comes in soon and it's all been delayed for COVID, like everything. Ugh, I hate COVID. Hey, Rob Roy here. Uh, really still enjoying your uh, BX deep dive, especially your little commentaries on the pictures, like a dwarf who's standing there, looks like he's posing for a picture, or the other guy who's uh, looking nonchalant, so he must be the neutral guy. Oh, that commentary just cracked me up, and I uh, loved uh, Jeff's uh, deep dive into your deep dive as well. His uh, detailed feedback was great. Hey, I'm glad you're enjoying the BX Deep Dive. It's been a lot of fun to do, too, and I, I regret having that big gap uh, from for February until just uh, earlier this week or whatever when I resumed it. I think I lost a lot of momentum there that I had built up and uh, um, lost a lot of listeners p- potentially for that. Hopefully they'll come back. And, uh, yeah, I really appreciate all the the calls I have from people and especially evil Jeff, as you note, having this long series, long conversation. And after this call in Bonanza, I'm going to release another episode, another call in Bonanza for all the BX, uh, responses to the encounter. And yes, Jeff has dropped his messages, his, uh, his end of the conversation and his reactions, so I can include that again. Hey, Rob Royer. Just finished listening to your one-year anniversary show. That whole Tico Torres bit really cracked me up, especially the part about him uh, being so humble that uh, he doesn't try to use that as an in into the uh, RPG gaming community. <laughs> uh, and, you know, whenever I think of Tim Shorts, I always imagine someone like Steve Palmer. Don't ask me why. All right, you have to tell me who Steve Palmer is now because I have no idea who that is. Um, and I think we should have a show where everyone calls in and gives the celebrity, pseudo-celebrity, whatever, who they think of when they are listening to Tim Shorts. Rob Roy here. In your BX Deep Dive, you talk about the fact that Detect Invisibility's spell is missing. Is it really missing, or we just can't see it? That's a good point. Maybe it was written in invisible ink somewhere. You need to do some kind of wash over the paper to reveal it. That would be an awesome Easter egg if we someone discovered that. 40 years after it was written. Hey, Rob, can I still join the musical loathing bandwagon? If I can use that metaphor. Uh, Yeah, I usually can't stand them. That said, I have enjoyed Dreamgirls, Moulin Rouge, and Chicago. If you were only going to pick one of those, I'd go with Moulin Rouge, just because it's got some great 80s music in it and a very uh, different style. Uh, but, uh, yeah, I don't know, Spencer's recommendations might be better. He sounds like he's watched some more recent stuff. Oh, and I can pass up the opportunity to mention uh, <laughs> D&D the Musical with your villain jazz hands. <laughs> oh, that killed me. That was fantastic. There's always plenty of room on the musical loathing bandwagon. All aboard! <laughs> or maybe it's like the Magical Mystery Tour or something. I don't know. Uh, but that's uh, that's all the call-ins we got from Roy Lorenko from Chaos's Limb. Thanks a lot, Roy. Sorry it took so long for me to get to them. And now let's move along to some more calls. Hey Rob, Jason here. The term you're looking for is milestone advancement. Milestone advancement. Show up, get an XP for each session. You know, once you have XP or level, you go up. So, you know, show up for one session, you go up from first, second level. Show up, or whatever, you know, wh- whatever the numbers are. Also, I want to, I think crowd, getting experience for crowding is perfect for a world based on the gore novels. Your, your world of gore based on the GOR, gore novels. I think that's great. I hope you tell us more about that world. Um, yes, I'm being a smartass. 
the other thing I want to mention is as far as experience and out of game experience, I think your plan is a good one. Larry Hamilton has done follow me and die has done that where he rewards experience for people writing in, you know, journal entries or, you know, doing session reports and stuff. And and that works for his, his game. So, so I know it does work for some people. So anyhow, take care. Talk to you later. There was Jason from nerds RPG variety cast. Yeah. I I did figure it out after I made the recording that it's a milestone advancement is the term that's used. uh, And seems to be a really popular format now. And I, I have read a couple of the gore novels. I don't plan on using that setting as a, a campaign world anytime soon. Uh, have you seen the the hokey? I think there are a couple of hokey gore movies. I know there was one that they did on uh, Lampoon on Mystery Science Theater, and it had Jack Palance as the high priest. <laughs> it was, oh, it was terrible! It was horrible, except for Jack, of course. And, uh, what was the last thing? Oh, uh, carousing. Yeah, I, I like those rules in general, as long as they don't get too crazy as far as, um, hand-waving something that maybe should be played out at the table. But, yeah, I think they work good. And, um, I've, I've had some success as far as rewarding players for, uh, journals or, communicating between session but so far it's been kind of mixed but keep hoping i keep hoping rob i love the idea of incentivizing your players to do what you want them to do in the game i think that's really smart i mean that's not a new idea or anything i know that but it's just it's a really good idea one that i i I never actually do because i almost always use milestone leveling because I'm lazy and that's the lazy way out. And so I just do that instead. But for my next campaign that I want to run, I really want them to spend time in their hometown slash home base. So I am going to reward XP for like one XP for every gold piece spent to better their hometown slash home base, whatever that is. Anyway, man, just thought peace out. And there was Joe from the Hindsightless podcast and from the Wheel or Woe actual play. Uh, yeah, incentivizing, certainly been around for a long time. For for those of you that do use Milestone Advance, I'm curious how you actually handle it as far as, you know, players not all being there for every session. I imagine that, you know, everyone has times where one of their players, maybe a couple of their players can't make it or has a long vacation or illness or whatever, you know, real life. Uh, So how do you handle that? I mean, do you have a table where it's based on the amount of sessions that you attend and then you level up? Or is it strictly just a, a narrative like, all right, boom, you finish this thing, everyone levels up. And if that's the case, do, do the players that have been there and taken the risks all the time, feel it all um, like they're getting the short end by re- by giving the same reward to the players that haven't been there all the time. I don't know. Just a thought. Bravo for that ending, dude. Brav fucking O. <laughs> Holy shit, that was awesome. All right, time for a little pick-me-up here. What can I cut it on? Maybe the back of my phone? Oh, oh yeah. Sweet Arcanium. Hey, Rob. Shandy Andy here. Just listened to your latest episode where you were talking about um, giving out experience for... Uh, basically discovering hexes and things like that for actual exploration. Uh, I found that very interesting. I, I, I've, I mean, I, I've just started um, my OSE Wilderlands um, campaign. We're about eight sessions in. And it's one of the things that I, I'd um, been thinking about because I have been giving 
uh, for each new hex that they actually explore some experience. But <laughs> I think you're going to cause a revolt in my group because you're giving out 100. I'm only giving out 50 XP per new hex. So maybe I need to reevaluate that. But I really like the idea of um, upping it for if you're discovering villages or you know cities and things like that. So, so some good ideas there, which I'm definitely going to take on board and put to my uh, players. So thanks very much for that. I was also interested, Rob, what you were saying about um, giving out XP for interaction outside of sessions. And I've certainly played in games when uh, XP has been awarded for, uh, you know, writing up the session and things like that. Um, I must admit, in my game, I, I have held off that. But it's a very personal view, this, because uh, if I'm honest, I'm just happy if, you know, the players are turning up on a regular basis. And I know from experience that sometimes it can put a bit of pressure on a, a player if they're, you know, they're making a big effort to turn up, make sure they're regularly turning up and that. But then when they've got to do stuff in addition to that, I'm, I'm, I'm uneasy, I must admit. And I, But I can see that some groups, yeah, that, that would definitely work for. So I think it's really very much dependent on your group. I'm certainly not expecting anything to be done outside the sessions in my group at the moment. But it's early days, you know, I'm just gauging the players and learning about them. Hey, cheers, Andy. That That's uh, Shandy Andy from Unguarded Treasure, B-52. And I appreciate the thoughts that you have there, the uh, exploration ideas, something that I kind of, I got from Keith, uh, one of the other DMs in my group, when he was running, um, was that? I think it was Stonehell he was running, and he was giving 50 experience points uh, for every room we explored in the dungeon uh, and then I think there was some kind of bonus he was giving too to encourage longer delves to like push the envelope as far as the risk so I think you got he had some kind of progression where the further you went the the higher the room reward um, but anyway I, I kind of extrapolated that idea to uh, to include exploration of wilderness and stuff too and uh, it just kind of made sense to me that you'd get experience points for visiting new settlements too uh i mean just to encourage people to actually travel and stuff too rather than just sitting in, in one spot and hunkering down uh but like joe mentioned in his uh, uh earlier call too i like the idea of rewarding people for uh can, uh, spending gold to improve like their stronghold or or just the upgrading their settlements and stuff contributing to the community and stuff i think that seems like a pretty cool idea too uh, your point is well taken about kind of requiring or expecting people to make contributions outside of the game as far as writing session reports or you know joining in on email ch chains or planning and stuff and I guess that's why I keep the reward fairly low on those things or why I'm, you know, typically giving a, a pretty low amount of experience points. It's not like I don't want it so that the people who don't have the time or maybe even just the inclination to take part in those outs, outside uh, session conversations are going to fall way behind or something if they don't. Uh, it's just more of a little bonus I throw to the people that do uh kind of contribute outside of the session because I think that does keep the flow of the game going more and adds just enrich enriches the whole game experience for everyone and you can get you know, take care of some of that uh, mundane nitty-gritty stuff uh, away from the table the table time to me is precious so when you spend an hour just like oh what are we gonna do today or uh Let's go shop at the, you know, the trader and see the armor and all this stuff. And so much of that could just be done away from the table if, if people could find the time to do it. And I fully appreciate the fact that I don't have uh, demands on, on my time like some, some do. I don't have children. You know, I'm not working like two jobs or something. I don't have any ailing family members thank goodness um so yeah if people did have you know things like that that were causing them to uh, not be able to contribute i'd, I'd 
totally understand and I'd maybe even just stop rewarding those that that weren't uh, um, <laughs> dealing with those situations. Anyway, thanks for the calls, Andy. I appreciate it. Hey, Rob, calling in with a question or two for your AMA episode that you're about to do. And apparently I'm rhyming. Anyway, man, so what is your most tragic character death? A, a character you were playing. Also, what was the gnarliest character death you had? Like where one of your characters just got obliterated, melted, or whatever, torn to shreds. Lastly, what is the most triumphant moment you've ever had as a character playing in a game? Not running it, but playing in it. So there's a few questions. Maybe somebody else already asked them. Maybe not. Anyway, that's what I got. Peace out. And there's Joe asking uh, about a, a conversation I think we were having on Discord where um, I was, I think I was talking about having a Ask Me Anything kind of podcast or something. And I did kind of have one of those uh a long time ago, last summer or sometime, I think I, I think Colin Green on Spike Pit had a Ask Me Anything uh, episode, and so I kind of uh, rode the coattails there a little bit and said that, hey, if people want to do that in my podcast, that's cool too. Anyway, first off, Joe, I haven't, I mean, most of my gaming has been on the DM side of the screen. And so much of my playing was <laughs> before, like, a a 10-year or so hiatus. So my memories, I've killed too many brain cells to remember a lot of that. But I do remember some of it, so this is what I'm going with. The most tragic PC death was my half-orc thief, Lucius. And... I guess the reason I felt it was tragic is in the middle of this adventure, I've there were we were doing a lot of there was a lot of faction play on the part of the monsters, and I felt like Lucius was kind of leading the charge and unraveling what these factions were and was coming up with um, ideas to bypass a lot of the physical threats and find out clues and stuff like that. And after they had dealt with one monster and were going to go and, I think, run an errand or discover something about another faction, and what, based on the information we found, we camped in uh, a stand of trees in the wilderness and... Keith rolled a wandering monster during the night, and it turned out to be giant spiders. And of course, Lucius uh, was surprised by them, bit, and uh, was uh, failed his saving throw versus poison and died. So he didn't even really have a chance to uh, <laughs> to do anything. It was basically just one of those things. Boom, you're dead. So I felt that was kind of tragic in light of the fact that uh, I thought Lucius was uh, a fun character to play, and I thought um, was, I don't know, I thought my play that night was particularly good. The gnarliest was playing back, again, with Keith as the DM. Keith's been, when I have played, it's, most of the time has been with Keith uh, DMing. He's been one of the other primary DMs in my life. But he was running the old Temple of Elemental Evil super module, and we were uh, in one of, the, one of the top levels of it. I think it's the Earth part. Um, and spoilers coming up here. Uh, I had a dwarven fighter that I was playing in the game, and he was a... Uh, old ex-army chef, so I named him Gus Boyardee. <laughs> and I remember having a, a picture I uh, made with a, a dwarf with a, a chef's hat perched at, atop his uh, his helmet. But old Gus Boyardee uh, was a little too close to some to an altar in the earth cult, I think, and uh, 
and it started rolling out and it was, I guess, called a juggernaut or something, but it steamrolled Gus, who probably had like 30, 35 hit points. He had a lot of hit points uh, for like a fourth level character or whatever. I think he had a 17 constitution or something. But anyway, he got smushed by the juggernaut for, I think it was 90 some points of damage. <laughs> Keith, I just remember having him a, him having a fistful of 10 sided dice. And there were a lot of eights and nines and tens that came up when he rolled it. Um, but yeah, so Gus was like a cartoon steamroller, just flattened like a pancake. And my most triumphant moment, uh, I think I'd probably say another Gus. Augustus, my magic user, uh, got killed when I think he was six level. And this was back like... 25 years ago maybe and this is probably the highest level character i had ever like legitimately gotten in a non-monty hall game uh so i was pretty pretty bummed out when he died and i don't even remember how he died but i was so triumphant when um the party discovered a reincarnation scroll so they reincarnated augustus and he came back in the form of a bugbear. <laughs> so I, he, I eventually got him up to, I think, 7th level before we stopped playing that game. And so I had a 7th level bugbear magic user. Lots of fun. Thanks for the question, Joe. I appreciate it. Hey, Rob. It's Evil Jeff. So I'm uh, doing a deep dive through your back catalog. Since there's no new content I want to get to just yet. <clears throat> anyway, so uh, going back to your back catalog, February 3rd of 2019, uh, you were talking about healing. And very good episode. You know, honestly, I had not really given a huge amount of thought to healing in BX. Always knew, yeah, one to three hit points in there. But you're right. It doesn't seem quite fair to higher level characters that they're going to be down for a lot longer in there. But then you pointed out about fifth edition as well how they can regain just stupid amounts of hit points so i kind of thought about that for a second and maybe a combination of the two of them a bx and fifth fifth edition will work my thought now is depending upon your level you can gain one to three hit points per day resting Still make you roll for it. Let it be random in there. But that way, higher level characters will regain them back faster. So it's not as bad. It doesn't take care of the difference in the hit dice between the different classes. But at least it accelerates the healing a little bit. It makes it a little fair. A little more fair. Just a thought in there. Anyway, let's go see what else you got in your back catalog since there's no really new stuff I want to look at. Later. And then there's Evil Jeff from Minions and Musing going through the back catalog, looking at some healing ideas I had. And uh, I had, I did direct message Jeff, and to clarify, he meant uh, his suggestion was uh, doing a D3 of hit points per level per day. So if you were a fourth-level character, you'd be rolling 4D3 to see how many hit points you recovered. And that's certainly a, a way you could do it to try and compensate for... Um, you know, not having this fifth, sixth level character taking forever to recover their hit points while the first level thief is, you know, on death's door and then boom, after one day he's fine. So I, I do think there's a big problem in most uh, old editions of D&D as far as that, that proportional recovery rate and how fighters take much longer to heal than than magic users and, and stuff like that. I, I prefer having it based on the hit die if you're going to do it, so the, the fighter would be rolling a d8 and the magic user and thief would be rolling a d4 and stuff. I think that keeps the proportion more in line. And what I've done is just done uh, your hit die plus one for every level above first level you are, so a fourth level fighter would be rolling a, a d8 plus three 
Now, some people have, you know, a constitution modifier in there, too, uh, if you've got a low or high constitution. And what I'm noodling around now with Wasteland Wanderers is uh, taking inspiration from the best left buried rules and also tying healing base around what your, um, the conditions of, of the place you're resting are. So if you're just a cold camp in the wilderness, you're not going to recover nearly as many hit points through, uh, through normal rest as if you're in a comfy feather bed in a, a cushy inn and are well-fed and, uh, have no worry in the world. Uh, so I think that kind of idea would steer people into, into going back to civilization to recover rather than, you know, camping out in a dank cave or lighting a fire and having a tent instead of just, uh, you know, rolling out a blanket over some rocks and laying in the mud and stuff. It's, uh, I don't know, it adds a little bit more of a thematic element, I think, to it. So, but yeah, I, I appreciate you going back through the back catalog and, uh, hopefully you're, <laughs> more engaged now that I'm re resuming the BX deep dive. And as I alluded to, Jeff has already given the responses to the latest edition, which will be coming shortly. Hey Rob, Jason here. Um, I can't disagree with Kevin Madison. I think info dump is a negative the same way min maxer is a negative. If, if like your one page reading, if somebody's interested in that, they're going to say, wow, that was good background. If somebody was bored with what you read, they'd say, what an info dump, right? So I think info dump is a negative. If somebody says that, it's going to be always be a negative use. I, I don't think there's a positive use of info dump, usually, you know. Uh, so I can see what he's saying there. Um, yeah, lore and fluff, I think it's a fine line. And some people's lore will be other people's fluff, you know. So, so like you say, it really depends on your group and what they're interested in and the degree of political wrangling and all they're going to get involved in. You know, if they're not going to try to get into royalty politics, then a lot of it's not going to matter to them, right? Yeah, the definition of these words is, uh, and the connotations, negative or positive, uh, often are in the eye of the beholder. And I suppose just the word dump <laughs> generally doesn't have uh, conjure up good images, does it? So I, I could see where someone could easily mistake info dump or take it personally that, you know, you're just kind of, I don't know, ragging on it. Um, and the same thing with fluff. I know Che Webster at Roleplay Rescue really has uh, an issue with fluff. And Tim Shorts actually just did a Gothridge Manor episode where he was talking a little bit about fluff too and how he viewed it as, from a, a writer point of view, that uh, back in the day uh, writers would call just adding words to get more because they were paid rate on the amount of words they wrote that was fluffing up their paycheck or whatever. So that's an interesting take on it too. And it is all really subjective as far as, you know, what, what is meaningful and what isn't. I, I wonder what would be a better word for something like, or a better phrase for info dump. I, I kind of put forward uh, a, a buy-in uh, which also might, I don't know, maybe that's negative too. Um, but yeah, if you're, if the expectation, and, and this is how I view what people are saying when they say an info dump, if it's uh, expectation or obligation, if you're, if the, the pay to play in this game is that you need to read a book, uh, that's obviously a pretty high bar. If it's to read 20 pages, that's still a pretty high bar. If it's to read five pages, well, anyone can find 15 minutes to read five, five pages, right? I mean, that just doesn't seem like asking too much. And I think if you don't read it, you're basically just flipping the middle finger to the DM more than anything. Uh, coming up with a better word for fluff, uh, Tim's talking about content, which doesn't really uh, differentiate between meaningful or non-meaningful content. Um, flavor, I suppose, is another word you could have for it. I mean, a lot of this stuff is really just 
kind of flavor for your game if something like uh, constellations in most games are going to be is just going to be uh, flavor. It doesn't really matter that this constellation is in the sky at night. It's just a, a visual or something. But then in something like a Dragonlance game, I think those constellations had, uh, you know, they represented the gods, and when the gods came to Earth, those constellations disappeared. So it was kind of, had a lot of meaning to it. And likewise, I think the wizards, their their magical ability was based on, like, the phase of the three different moons, depending on which alignment you were. So the phases of the moons had an impact in the game, and I, I think that's when we're talking about things like fluff and lore or when they have an impact in the game and when they don't and like you're saying i think most of the things that are meaningful you can decide that at at the table and as the game progresses you delve into those things that the players want to explore and the themes or the, the actual physical area they want to explore you start developing it more and maybe you include them in that and maybe you don't I mean, I think in an exploration game, there's quite a bit of risk in involving the players in the creation because that removes the element of surprise and discovery from it. If, they, if they're helping you to decide what's over the next hill, well, the, where the game kind of loses something, I guess. But anyway, I'm rambling too far on this, uh, but I appreciate your viewpoint and your call. Thanks, Jason. Rob, great having you back on the microphone, man. I, I'm so happy to hear that you're safe and you're, you know, you're putting out, you got plans to put out more episodes. That's fantastic. I'm very excited for your deep dive to continue. I, I just loved all of those episodes. The other reason for my call is in this discussion of lore dump versus fluff versus whatever, something that has gotten overlooked that I don't normally see brought up a lot is... As annoying as it is for a dungeon master to give a player like a five, ten page document on setting, it's equally as annoying and shitty of the player to just be like, no, I'm not going to read this. Fuck you. Like, that's what that's what that is. That's a fuck you to the dungeon master. And like, I just think it needs to be said. Maybe I should expand on that a little bit. <laughs> um, it, it's it's I, I feel it's mutually egregious, you know, for a dungeon master to expect the player to read a whole bunch about the setting, but it, like it still sucks for a player just to flat out say no. Like you're my friend, you're the dungeon master, you've put in all this work. I'm not willing to even, you know, even entertain the idea that this might be interesting, that I might find something cool or exciting in here. And I, it, I just find it fascinating that I have not heard this point of view brought up. It's always that it's bad of the dungeon master to do it. So in closing, let me just add that while it might be annoying if a DM gives you a boatload of material to read uh, before a game, the very least you can do as a player is skim it. You, may, you maybe not have to read the whole thing, but the Dungeon Master did all this work. The least you could do is show some appreciation for that work and glance over it. It's not too much to ask i don't think anyway that's enough for me sorry about all the swearing in first uh but yeah that's it peace out hey joe no worries about the swearing i don't care i should i should probably uh turn on the explicit warning or whatever it is on anchor but i don't know if what if there's there's not a whole lot on my podcast and you know what kids hear this stuff all the time anyway it's not like uh there's any kid over the age of five that hasn't heard and probably uses uh, among their friends some of this language. So I don't know. Colorful language is fine with me. Uh, I agree with what you're saying here. I mean, I think um, 
I think players can be really lazy. Not all of them, obviously. I'm not going to make a blanket statement about anything, but but there, there are a lot of players that just won't do it. And I get it. I mean, we're all busy. Sometimes, you know, the DMs aren't professional writers. Maybe what they write is kind of uh, boring or maybe even dumb. I don't know. But, uh, like you said, in most cases, these are your friends and they've spent a lot of time putting this stuff together. And if the DM is expected to read, you know, these player character backgrounds, which some players give, well, the least they can do then is reciprocate and read what the DM gives them. But I find it particularly frustrating when it's something like house rules and the players don't read it and (laughs) and they're constantly asking questions that it's like well if you just read the house rule document we wouldn't have to be spending this time explaining it during play and wasting everyone else's time and the same could be said for like campaign material too well who's who's so and so well he's the king if you had read the source material the two pages i gave you you'd know this but you wouldn't read it, so now we got to waste time during the, the game session to explain it to you. So yeah, I think it's totally raising a big F you to the DM, and really to the other players, too, to some degree, because you're just basically saying, sorry, I, you know, I don't have time to read two pages. Uh, I've got far more important things to do than, than, uh, than do that, so I'm going to waste your time during the gameplay. So yeah, I think it's pretty pretty shitty too when people do this. Um, now, if it's twenty five pages, I totally understand, you know. But if it's two, if it's three, or if you're given this stuff months in advance or even a week in advance, are you telling me you really can't find time to read twenty pages in a week? Uh, I mean, I don't know. I I suppose some people really do have so much going on in their life or or just aren't in the mood for it, and that's cool, whatever, but uh, <clears throat> try and do it at eventually, I mean, let's not have it be session 10, and you still haven't read <laughs> the house rules, or the uh, background material, and uh, I did have a little direct message comment with Joe, because he was saying that he hadn't really heard other people talking about the issues of you know, DM expectations and player expectations so much, and I directed him to one of my first few episodes, I think it was called DM Expectations, When is Enough, or What's Enough, or whatever, and um, and he <laughs> totally was like, oh yeah, I remember listening to that, so uh, yeah, we all kind of, all these podcasts kind of run together, and you kind of forget where you heard something, or even sometimes that you listen to it until your memory is jogged, so totally get it. But wow, whew, that's uh, 24 messages. It serves me right for this long <laughs> episode. Thanks for those of you that made it all the way through. Uh, it was a pretty long ramble, and uh, but I, I appreciate all the calls I got and get in the future. So thanks to Roy Lorenko from Chaos's Limb, to Jason Connerly from Nerds RPG Variety Cast, to Jason from Hindsightless, and Evil Jeff from Minions and Musings, and Shandy Andy from Unguarded Treasure B-52. I think I got everyone. I'll listen back and make sure. But until I talk to you again, BX... Uh, uh, Deep Dive, number seven, Encounter, Colin Bonanza, is coming up next. Don't go down in a heap.